marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The title of my message this morning is Signs, Saints, and Sevens in Heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be able to be in your word freely, Lord, and to worship you openly, and to know, Holy Spirit, that you are here in this place to teach us and instruct us in all things, Lord. And as we look at your word this morning, we pray, Father, that uh, we would have not only information but application in our lives that would change us, conform us more into the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the power that you breathe into it to change our lives and to, to draw us to you. And Lord, we finally pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again today. Jesus, you said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here not born again, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior today. So bless our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nowadays, there's signs all over the place to warn us of dangers that are out there, dangers ahead. I found a few that I thought was a little bit humorous. This one is, do not touch. Not only will this kill you, it will hurt the whole time you are dying. <laughs> kind of strong motivation to not want to touch that. Or this one, caution, fire is hot. Kind of a, a no-brainer. Or this one on a coffee vending machine. It says, uh, this vending machine has no cups. Please do not cup your hands underneath it instead. <laughs> or this one. If your children bleed on the arrows, you will have to buy them. Somewhere along the line, a kid picked up an arrow and cut themselves on that. Two more. Caution, do not swallow. And there's a picture in a circle with a guy with a hanger in his neck. I, I, I don't know. Finally, this last one, it says, Big scary laser, do not look into the beam with remaining eye. <laughs> Means you did with the one eye already. Signs are important in this physical world. You missed a street sign and you, had, you can end up lost, you got to end up turning around. And, and signs help us know which way to go and where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. They're a valuable purpose in our lives. And just as there are signs in the physical realm, there are also signs in the spiritual realm. Those signs are even more important than the signs in the physical world. 
I mean, you can miss a sign or two here and things will probably turn out okay. But if you miss too many spiritual signs, you might have, at the very least, be end up unprepared when the Lord returns. At the very worst, end up in hell. Well, chapter 15 begins with a great sign. In fact, I want to look at three things if you're a note taker. Number one, we're going to look at a sign in heaven. Number two, the saints in heaven. And number three, the seven angels in heaven. Number one, the sign in heaven. Look at verse one again. We read, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Now there are three specific signs that we read about in the book of Revelation. First in chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. And we looked at that when we were back in chapter 12. Number two, we looked at there in chapter 12, verse 3, where we read, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon. And we looked at what that meant as well. This is now the third sign that we come to in chapter 15. And we read, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Now, what is this great sign? Well, it's the seven angels having the seven last plagues. See, chapter 15 is the last half of the seven-year great tribulation period and the last seven plagues that will come on the earth. While the church has been tucked away safely in heaven since chapter 4, we see chapters 15 and 16 with a kind of a a foreview to the last round of judgments that God is going to bring out upon this earth. During the tribulation period, there are three sets of judgments. There are the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the final bowl judgments. They're progressive in that each one is worse than the last. In between these judgments, there's a kind of an overview of the whole picture. Chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 14 brought us to the end of the world. We're shown that before the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, before the coming down of the new Jerusalem to the earth, in that awesome period before the final intervention of God Almighty, he draws aside the curtain, if you will, so that we might see some of the details of this final consummation. For example, he shows us the end of the trinity of evil, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets. God will have us to know the end of the great city called Mystery Babylon, and we'll look at that. Before all the blessings will come upon the earth, there must be a purging of sin and, and death and unrighteousness and blasphemy and rejection of Christ. It all must be dealt with with a final death blow. Chapters 15 and 16 go together as they are now a part of that final death blow that represents God's final response to an unrepentant, wicked world. Verse 1 says, for in them the wrath of God is complete. That word for wrath is the word thymos, which means great anger or passionate wrath. You know, you see the signs out there that says, smile, God loves you. And, and yes, he does love you, it's true. But because he is a God of love, he also is a God that must judge. Psalm 7 verse 11 tells us God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. And so this, this great sign is these seven angels bringing these last seven judgments that will come upon the earth. It's the absolute conclusion of the wrath of God. Now understand, it's not because God has finally lost his temper and finally fed up and said, you know, I'm so mad, I can't believe it, that's it. And, 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 and just gets angry. No, God is not surprised at anything that man does. 
He sees. He knows men's hearts. If anything, this shows us just how gracious and how long-suffering and patient and merciful God has been with the world not to have poured out His wrath sooner. In fact, we're told in Psalm 103, verses 8 and 10, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Verse 10, He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. But it's mankind who will have nothing to do with, with God and His mercy. Listen, the only thing that prevents this world from being utterly consumed today is the mercy of God. Lamentations 3.22 Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fell not. Now verse 2, John sees something interesting. He says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. If you've ever gone water skiing or you know wakeboarding, I guess, or you, you go out on the lake maybe first thing in the morning before all the boats get out there, and that, that water could just be like a sea of glass. It's just, just, just smooth as could be. But this sea of glass takes us back to chapter 4 in the throne room of God. It appears around God's throne. It, it, it's this transparent crystal platform that, that has the appearance of a sea of glass. However, here in chapter 15, we have an added detail that was not in chapter 4, and that is this glassy sea is mingled with fire. Now, the fire here could represent uh, the fiery trials that God's people had to go through on earth during the tribulation that cost them their lives, and now they're the martyrs in heaven. Or it also may be symbolic of the fact that God's fire of judgment is about to fall upon the earth. Personally, I think it's both that I see here, that God's delivered them from their fiery trials that are about to fall upon the earth. And the reason it could be both is because that's the way God has worked in the past. Oftentimes, God's means of deliverance is also His means of judgment. For example, the great flood. It was the waters of the flood that were the source of the deliverance of Noah and his family. As the waters rose, so did the ark and delivered them from the destruction. But it was the same water that destroyed all the unsaved people who were left on the earth. In the same way, the children of Israel, they were trapped with the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian soldiers on the other side. And God parted the sea, the Bible says, so that Israel was able to walk on dry ground to get to the other side. But that same sea that was parted came crashing down, destroying the pursuing Egyptian army. Even in our water baptisms, it works the same way symbolically. As we go under the water, we symbolize putting to death that old ways or old life or old man, that unsaved uh, nature. Then hopefully and quickly, until I don't see any more bubbles, pull you up out of the water. And that is symbolizing the new life you have in Christ. And here in Revelation, we learn that God's people will stand upon a sea of glass, but later on we'll see the unsaved thrown into the lake of fire. So again, uh, what, what is, uh, again, what is a means of deliverance can also be a means of destruction. Now John sees these saints who have been persecuted and martyred on the earth, men and women who have been ruthlessly hunted down, destroyed during the Antichrist reign of terror, standing upon the sea of glass or singing upon the sea of glass, a special group of people. And that brings us to point number two, the saints in heaven. Look at verse two again. And I saw something like the sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, 
having harps of God. Now we've looked at the beast and the image and the mark and the number of his name. Uh, Here now we see these saints in heaven. And we see three things about these saints in heaven. First and foremost, they're victorious in heaven. Unlike the New Orleans saints who are not victorious on earth. But uh, Now, I'm not a saints fan, but that doesn't matter. But anyway, I'm the saints fan. Um, I want to suggest to you, and I believe that these saints are a new group of martyrs that come from being martyred during the last half of the Great Tribulation period. If you've been following along with us in Revelation, you remember back in chapter 7, we saw the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and we immediately understood their ministry, what they would be doing. Because right after that, then we read of the multitude in heaven from every tribe, tongue, and every nation. And I believe those are the ones that have professed Christ in the first half of the Great Tribulation. Millions and millions of uh, uh, people give their life to Christ as a result of their witness. See, I believe as soon as a rapture takes place, it's going to be one of the greatest revivals ever to come upon the earth. People are going to go, man, that, you know, Tom's been telling me about this rapture. All the time, rapture can happen right now, happen right now, right now. And it happened. They're going to give their life to Christ. They're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, since that time, we have read about the Antichrist. We've read about the false prophet. We've read about the mark of the beast, the image, the abomination of desolation. And now we read of these martyrs standing in heaven. And that's why I believe that these are the ones that came to Christ uh, after the halfway point of the tribulation, after the abomination of desolation. Remember, we've been studying how the Antichrist, the coming world leader, will be fully energized by Satan himself during the tribulation period. We looked at how he's going to set up an image of himself in this newly rebuilt temple, require everyone to worship the image, worship him, and then at the same time require everyone to take uh, this mark of his government upon their right hand or upon their forehead, in which they can't buy or sell anything unless they have this mark. The penalty of refusing that is, is death. So here again, we have these martyrs that have died standing in heaven on this glassy sea before God's throne. These who who have made commitments to Christ while they were alive during the Great Tribulation, they were the ones victorious over the Antichrist. How are they victorious? Same way we are victorious today. Listen to 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? These martyrs had victory over the beast, over worshiping the image of the beast, overtaking his mark, victory overtaking the number of his name because of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God has victory. Victory over sin, victory over death. Now, how do they do it? By keeping their eyes, keeping their focus on Jesus Christ. They will know that they are very, very close to their heavenly destination. Isn't that what keeps us going today, church? How, how, how do we have peace and patience and perseverance during this time? We keep our eyes on the Lord, knowing that we are very, very close to reaching our final destination. God has given us the, the, the seal of his Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 tells us, as a guarantee of our safe arrival there in heaven. So we must keep our eyes on the shores of heaven, knowing that we are going to make it, knowing that we are going to be victorious. 
And it's that same faith and perseverance that will keep these saints going in the future. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. Think about that. All right, let's just pick them up and put them on the ark, okay? Come on. So we have these tribulation saints who have come through the fires of persecution on earth victoriously in heaven. Secondly, the thing we see about these saints in heaven is that they have, in verse 2, harps of God. Now, when you think of your favorite musical instrument, usually, for me, it's a, it's a piano or guitar, secondly. But if you really want to get a jump on what it's going to be like worshiping in heaven, get some harp lessons. Now, it does say that these are harps of God they're holding, so it could actually be a new kind of harp altogether. And yeah, a definition of the word harp is a plucked stringed instrument. Who knows? I mean, it could be electric sounding guitar, you know, play that maybe, or just a little, I don't know if it's going to go like, maybe it's a banjo, you know, or ukulele, you know, I don't know, classical sounding guitar, whatever it is, it's going to be awesome because it's something that God gives them. So they're playing this, these musical instruments. They're, 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 they're victorious in heaven. They're on the sea mingled with, with fire, glass mingled fire. And then the third th- thing we see with these saints in heaven is that they're, they're singing in heaven. Verse 3 says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So we see that these saints are able to sing, and they do sing. That's a good question for us today. Are we able to still sing? We're not in the great tribulation now, nor will we ever be, praise God. But with all that's going on in our nation recently, we need to ask ourselves the question, am I keeping my heart focused on Jesus? Am I able to still sing praises to Him, or have I allowed all that's going on in the world to take away my joy, to take away the song that's in my heart? David said in Psalm 103, 104, verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. He didn't say, I will sing to the Lord as long as things go my way. I will sing to the Lord as as long as all is well in the world. No, he says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing to my God. Listen, we can lose our song, our joy, and become very bitter, especially towards those who don't hold the same political view that we do. Maybe their candidate won. Do you say, that's it, I'm not praying for them anymore. Or do you say, I take that back, I will pray for them. I pray that they get what's coming to them. No, wait a minute. Listen, we need to, to we're told in Hebrews 12, 15 in the New Living Translation, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Listen, we can become very bitter towards the same people we need to reach with the love of Jesus Christ. And I believe it's a constant fight that we face against not allowing that root of bitterness to spring up into our hearts. Bitterness can rob you of your joy and ruin your Christian walk. For those of you a little bit old, remember Buddy Hackett, he once confessed, I've had a few arguments with people, but I never carry a grudge. You know why? While you're carrying a grudge, they're out dancing. In other words, carrying bitterness only hurts yourself. Someone once said, no matter how long you nurse a grudge, it won't get better. Listen, in this life that we're living down here, 
there may be that bitterness that wants to creep in. What are you doing about it? Let me encourage you. Sing to the Lord. Pray. Be in God's word. Sing praises to the Lord. Pray that your heart will stay right before the Lord. See, I have learned over the years, any circumstance that I face, anyone that crosses my path, even an enemy, God will use in my life to teach me a lesson. And the same thing is true for you. God allows these things in our life for a reason, to develop your character, to conform you more into His image and His likeness. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Listen, if these saints can come through the great tribulation and still sing, then you and I certainly ought to have a song in our hearts regardless of our circumstances. Here they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This is great because here in Revelation 15, we actually have the lyrics to one of the songs. They are the lyrics to the song of the Lamb. And we'll look at that in a moment. What about the lyrics to the song of Moses? Well, you can find that back in Exodus chapter 15. You don't need to turn there. There's 19 verses in Exodus 15 praising God for their deliverance from Egypt. In fact, Exodus 15, the song of Moses, is the first praise song recorded in Scripture. And here, Revelation 15, the song of the Lamb, is the last praise song recorded in Scripture. Don't forget also, we've seen the 144,000 again to sing a song that nobody can learn the lyrics to. It's just their song. And there's been plenty of songs over the years whose lyrics make no sense whatsoever. Worst song, according to one survey, was the 1968 hit MacArthur Park. Someone left the cake out in the rain. I don't think I could take it because it took so long to bake it and I'll never have that recipe again. Oh, no. (laughs) What is he even talking about? (laughs) But that's not the case here in chapter 15. We're told they're going to sing two songs. One, the song of Moses, and two, the song of the Lamb. And we know exactly what they're talking about. Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15 speaks of God's deliverance from Egypt. The song of the Lamb speaks of God's deliverance from the Great Tribulation. It's interesting that the song of Moses was sung near the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb was sung near the Glassy Sea. The song of Moses was sung by those brought out of Egypt. The song of the Lamb was sung by those brought into heaven. So a whole lot of singing going on, a lot of different choirs and stringed instruments, and an awful lot of fun just praising the Lord. Let's look at the song of the Lamb. Look at verse 3. They sing, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. All the songs speak of God's rule and reign on the earth. Here we read, all nations shall come and worship before you. Folks, it's quite obvious we are no longer living in a Christian nation. But there will come a day, the Bible says so, that a nation, every nation will worship the Lord. Now this knowledge should cause us to take heart as we see our nation moving in the wrong direction. As a child of God, I can see what's happening in the world, but I know I cannot remedy one thing, but Christ can. Listen to Psalm verse two, chapter 2, verse 8. We read, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. All the nations 
will belong to the Lord. And when they do, he's going to execute judgment and justice in the earth. And I thank God for that. Now, Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of the things in heaven and the things in earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today, it's sickening to see the immorality and godlessness and injustice going on. And as God's children, we need to pray for our country because I believe it's going to get a lot worse. But we should also rejoice because there's coming one who will execute justice and judgment upon the earth. I like what Pastor Jack Hibb said this last Wednesday on the video we watched. As we see the world falling apart, we know that it's actually all coming together for the return of Jesus Christ. That's what both of these songs are speaking of here. They speak of God's rule and reign on the earth. And they imply that God's judgment is coming prior to his rule and reign upon the earth. Listen, I think this is a good place to remind us of the fact that the book of Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That is, it is all Christ-centered. Don't let the mark of the beast and the Antichrist and the false prophet and the wrath of God or the 144,000 or the angel flying across the sky distract us from the purpose of Revelation. It's the unveiling of Jesus. Jesus is in charge. He is the Lord. And in this book, we have the unveiling of Christ in His holiness, in His power, in His glory. He's the only one that could put His hand in the hand of God and put His other hand in the hand of man and bring us together. And He could do that because He is God. And again, this song speaks about His rule and reign in the earth and implies that His judgment is coming just prior to that. For we read, for your judgments have been manifested. Listen, I think every believer of every age can praise God for his judgments. I praise God for his judgment of my sins. That I will never be judged for my sins. They were all judged at the cross of Jesus Christ as he took my place and he took the punishment that I deserve. I praise God for his coming judgment of sin. That those who refuse to repent and are rejecting Jesus Christ cannot be allowed to go on in their rebellion forever. I also praise God that he is long-suffering towards them, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But when they refuse, he must judge their sin, having rejected the only one who paid the price for our sins, Jesus Christ. So they must be, be and will be punished for their sin. Otherwise, God would need to be loving or holy. It's been pointed out that this song gives praise to all that Jesus has done. His works are great and marvelous. His ways are just and true, it says. His worthiness is expressed as they glorify His name and He will be worshipped by all nations. I'd say the emphasis is in the right place on how to worship our God and Savior. They sing, Your works and Your ways and Your name and You alone are holy. Come and worship You, Your judgments, Your, 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 You, You, You. All pointed to the Lord Jesus. And we should be doing that as we worship the Lord, sing directly to the Lord about His works, about His ways, about His worthiness. Not that we can't sing other praise songs about how great our God is and songs to cry out and help, but I believe singing to Him is something we should never get away from. This brings us to our final point, the seven angels in heaven. Look at verses 5 through 8. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chest girded with golden bands, that one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now understand that the tabernacle that was on the earth in Moses' time was a representation of God's throne room in heaven. Where it says here that the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony, that's a term for the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was placed in Jerusalem. See, in the Old Testament, God had commanded the Jews to build a tabernacle. It was a portable cloth-like tent with cloth walls in which the children of Israel could approach God. Here's an example of what it may have looked like. Disregard the temporary electrical power in the bottom left-hand corner there. They didn't have that, but... But you can see that it had a, a courtyard and a covered enclosed area in the middle of it. The courtyard was fenced that went all the way around with only one gate in. There's only one way you can approach God. And as soon as you walk through that gate, you being a priest, a representative of the people, the first thing you found was an altar. And on that altar is where the animals were killed and blood was shed as the animal was sacrificed to God. And the point was clear. The only way to approach God was through sacrifice. So then you'd get a little bit closer. And then you'd come into this tent structure, and the first one was called the holy place. In the holy place, I think we have a picture of that. In the holy place, to your left would be the seven-branch candlestick. To the right of that would be a table with the showbread on it, representing the tribes of Israel. And then a little golden altar right in front of the veil. The veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. On the other side of that veil was a piece of furniture. What was that? The Ark of the Covenant. You have a picture of that. Da, 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 da. Ark of the Covenant was this wooden box overlaid with gold, and on the top of it was a lid called the Mercy Seat. On top of that were on the lid were these angels. So this is also called the Temple of the Tabernacle of the Testimony, as we read in verse five. Now, why is it called that? Because of what's inside of it. There are three things inside of the Ark of the Covenant. First of all were the Ten Commandments. Two tablets of stone. Actually, it was a, a second. You know, the first one, if you remember, Moses got a little ticked off, saw the children of Israel in idolatry, broke them, smashed them in his anger. And so this is a copy of the, of the first one there. there. And so uh, it was a testimony against Israel because they had broken God's law. Now, also, you can see in the picture, there's a pot of manna inside of it as well. The word manna means, what is it? Because it was this weird bread substance that fell for 40 years out in the desert of Sinai, out in the wilderness to preserve and, and, and the children of Israel. It was the nourishment that God provided for them to keep them alive. Did they like it? No. They complained over and over again, I hate manna, I want something else. And you know, having it for breakfast and lunch and dinner for 40 years, you probably learned to be very creative, right? They probably had a cookbook, 101 ways to prepare manna. But manna bread, manaroni and cheese, you know, I don't know. Just plain manicotti, right? But, the, but they complained against the stuff, so a little jar of it was preserved and kept inside the Ark of the Testimony. It was a testimony against the children of Israel for their grumbling against God's provision for them. Third thing inside this box was a little rod, a piece of the staff that Aaron used that was a symbol of his leadership. Now you remember, may remember that there was an argument among the people and they said, well, who is this Aaron dude? 
Who put him in charge? And, and, and Moses as well. And they started complaining against his leadership that God had raised up. And so God said, okay, let's have a contest, number 17. Whoever has a staff that buds, that goes forth flowers and fruit, that's the leader I've chosen. Well, only one staff did, and it was Aaron's. And so they kept that in, the, in that ark. So those three implements, that was a testimony against them for going against God's appointed leadership. And so here you have a box. It's in the center of the camp of Israel. It's a testimony of the failure of the people. Now, the good news is this. Catch this. Once a year, the high priest would walk into that room, sprinkle blood on top of that lid that covered all those implements. And so that box then became known, the top of it became known as, as the place of mercy, the seat of mercy, the mercy seat. It was changed from the ark of testifying against them to a place of mercy extended to them. Now, John, seeing this vision, being a good Jewish boy from Galilee, understood, hey, this is the temple in heaven. And looking at the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony, the, the, the place of mercy, of salvation, he now understands it's turned into a throne of judgment. All of the judgments are issuing forth from this place, from this ark of the testimony. And John looks up and he hears these martyrs singing their songs. And then verse 5 tells us, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Why was it open? Verse 6, so that seven angels could perform what God has called them to do. We read them, they are clothed in pure light and having their chest girded with golden bands. This speaks of the power and the majesty and the holiness of God. These angels are handed the bowls of wrath that we'll look at next week as the judgment were to begin as we get into chapter 16. But for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, it's mercy. Jesus paid the sacrifice for us. His blood was shed. His mercy is ours. We don't have to pay the penalty of our sins. We will not be judged for our sins. But not so during the tribulation because they did not accept that sacrifice that Jesus made. Judgment must come to them. Finally note that it says in verse 8 that the temple in heaven was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. I want to close with this. We read, The temple in heaven was filled with smoke from the glory of God. This is something that only happens three times in Scripture, and it's worth taking note of. I believe this teaches us a lesson about what it means to move in the glory of God and really is the key of us, the church, being effective in our witness and in our testimony. And it ties all of this together. Three lessons that we learn from the glory here. First and foremost, obedience brings God glory. See, the first time that we see smoke filling the temple is found in Exodus chapter 40 when Moses completed the tabernacle. Moses followed the, the Lord's instructions in building the tabernacle to a T. He was obedient to the will of God. And following his obedience to God's will, the temple was filled with smoke and the presence of God was so powerful and dynamic. So this shows us, first and foremost, if we really want to experience the power of God's Spirit working and moving in our lives, and if we really want to be effective in our testimony and in our witness, then obedience is the key. We must obey the Lord. Secondly, we see the second time the, the glory of the Lord 
filling the temple. It's found in Second Chronicles chapter 5. The temple was complete. The priest began to sing and praise the Lord when all of a sudden the glory of the Lord filled the temple so completely that no one could enter in. Second point, worship brings God glory. As we worship the Lord, as we sing praise to Him, we, we bring Him glory. Now what about here in Revelation, in our text this morning, what is being said here? Well, I mean we have seven angels with bowls full of wrath of God. They're being ready to be poured out. Judgment is about to come and God's glory is seen for the third time. The glory of God fills the temple. What's this lesson? Well, I believe the glory of God filling the temple a third time because what we're seeing here is that sin still needs needed to be dealt with. Obedience brings God's glory. Worship brings God glory. And finally, dealing with sin brings God glory. You see, these angels here are about to bring the judgment and the wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting world upon sin. And when that happens... God's glory begins to flow. Listen, maybe the reason you're not experiencing the glory of God or the presence of God this morning in your life is because maybe you're holding on to some sin, something that, that you're not confessing to the Lord. Maybe just kind of rationalizing it or, or justifying it and saying, oh, it's just a little sin. I'm still saved. Yeah, you're still saved, perhaps, but do you really want to live just a still saved life? Is that what you want? Wouldn't you rather have a dynamic and and effective and an abundant Christian life? Do you really want to be a saved soul with a wasted life? God, help us to recognize how important this is. If we want to experience the fullness and the presence of God in our lives, if we want to be effective in our testimony for His glory, then we must let go of and allow God to deal with the sin in our lives. We can't tolerate it. We must cut it off, we must confess it, and we must repent of it because it's sin that separates us from God. Now there are those that, that say, well, you know, I, I go to Bible studies and I go to prayer meetings and I sing songs, but I just don't sense God's presence. You know what, nine out of ten times, the reason for that is because there's some sin that you just won't let go of, that you just won't confess, that you just won't give up, something that you're hanging on to. Let me ask you, is there something you're hanging on to this morning? If I'm speaking to someone here in that place, please may I encourage you, may I plead with you, don't make excuses anymore for that sin. Confess it and repent of it. Judging it as God judges it as sin and ask for forgiveness for it and do what you know is right. And let me tell you, the glory and the presence and the peace of God will flood your heart this morning if you're willing to do that. You know, it's funny. Next week will be Super Bowl Sunday, and we're looking at the bowl judgments next week. Uh, I love the way God does that. I mean, he's a Super Bowl of God's wrath. But you see, God will once and for all deal with the sin that has been destroying humanity, and, and the people will all have to face the repercussions of their sin. Listen, there will always be repercussions when unconfessed sin is involved. David had to deal with the repercussions of his own sin. He had had an affair with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband Uriah. After all this, David wrote this in Psalm 51, 7 and 8. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. 
What's he talking about? Well, when a lamb uh, repeatedly jeopardized its own safety by continually wandering away from the flock, the shepherd would take that lamb and would break one of its legs. Then through the healing process, the shepherd would carry that straying lamb on his shoulder while that lamb was healing. Now, during that time, something amazing happened with the lamb. See, after about five or six weeks, when this bone couldn't again support his weight, the lamb remained really, really close to the shepherd, never to wander again. Not because he feared another broken bone, but because he had grown attached to the shepherd. And that's why David is crying out here, that the bones you have broken may rejoice again. Folks, if we wander away and continue down that path of sin, the good shepherd will do what he did with David and what David did with his own sheep. There's discipline. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He'll break the bone of our self-sufficiency in order to force us to draw closer to him in a way we never would have otherwise. Now, just in case you think that the bold judgments that are about to be poured out in this tribulation are unfair, then take a look at our good shepherd. And you'll realize that, that he's also the Lamb of God who suffered not a broken bone, but a broken body and a broken heart as he died for you and as he died for me. He went to the cross. He paid that price. So that all those who put their faith and trust in him would have their sin forgiven. And so, as we close this morning, if you're here and you've never experienced the forgiveness of your sin, that new life in Christ, if you're not born again, I beg you, give your life to Christ. He stands at the door of your heart. He's knocking. You open the door. He'll come in. He'll forgive you of every sin that you've ever committed. He'll write your name in the book of life. He'll assure you a place in heaven. And he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you to live and, and to guide you and to lead you in all, all righteousness. But you've got to take that step and say, God, I want to come to you. I want my sin forgiven. If you're this morning as a believer and you put your faith in, in Christ, but you've been caught up in an habitual sin and you're just wondering why you don't have that joy in your life anymore, it's pretty clear. God calls you to confess that sin. He says, if you confess that sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of that, of that sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You know that's in 1 John 1, 9. He wrote that to the church. If you confess your sin, God is faithful. He's just to forgive you of that sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So if you're here this morning and you're not experiencing that joy and peace and God's knocked in your heart, confess it to the Lord. God, I'm sorry I turned from that today. If you don't know the Lord, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and grace in our lives. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, upon that mercy seat, Lord, we can come and we can find that grace and mercy in our time of need. Lord, that the Holy of Holies has been opened up for us to, to enter in. Why? Because of what you did, Jesus, upon that cross for us. Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, would you speak to their heart? Would you touch them? Would you help them to make that commitment to you today? While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? God bless you in the back. I see that hand. Anybody else? You want to give your life to Jesus? God bless you, ma'am, over here in the corner. Anybody else you want to give your life to Christ today? Just raise your hand, acknowledging it before the Lord. Lord, I want you as my Savior. I want my sin forgiven. 
It's just between you and the Lord. For those of you that have raised your hand, coming to Christ simply means opening your heart to Him and surrendering your life to Him. And if you just say this simple prayer, mean it from your heart, God will do that work in your heart. Let's just pray this prayer with me. Church, we can sing, pray along with it. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it today. Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that I am now a child of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And Father, I thank you for these two that have raised their hands and made this commitment. Lord, I pray for us as a church as well. If we have any uh, sin in our lives that we need to confess, we confess that to you as well this morning. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our, our, our thankfulness, all of our prayers. Father, we want nothing to hinder the work that you want to do with us. So we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's give a hand for those that have gave their life to the Lord.